in psychological and sociological circles, there is a phenomenon known as the mere exposure effect. The mere exposure effect is also known as the familiarity principle. And according to this principle, there is a phenomenon in which we develop a preference for things simply because we are familiar with them. So whether it be words, foods, paintings, sounds, even faces, that which we see often, that which we become familiar with, becomes pleasing to us. Even if it's objectively pleasing, it becomes subjectively pleasing to us because it's familiar and comforting. So, for example, according to Wikipedia, the great bastion of all knowledge, it has been found in studies in interpersonal attraction that people are more attracted to people they see more often. That the more you see a person, the more pleasing and likable you find them. This may be why Hollywood just puts out sequels, right? We find more pleasing that which we're familiar with. It's kind of an obvious principle, actually. When we are around something, the more we're around it, the more we're comfortable with it, the more we find it pleasing to us. That is true of Christmas stories and Christmas stories in the Bible. These stories, we've heard them often and repeated, and every Christmas season we go over these stories again, and they kind of become pleasing to us because we're familiar with them, we know them. And who doesn't know the song, which we'll sing later, about the three kings from the Orient? And these stories may be pleasing to us, may be familiar with them, but we do have to ask, do we actually know them? Like, do we know what they actually say? Do we know why they're included in our Bibles? Like, why did Matthew include this weird story in his narrative of Jesus Christ? I think Matthew includes this story to show us what kind of people worship Jesus and what kind of people God calls to worship Jesus. And he includes this story so that we can reflect on it and we can ask ourselves the question, how will you respond to the arrival of King Jesus? That's our our main question. That's my main question that's driving me today that I want you to ask of yourself as we're going through this story. How will you respond to the arrival of King Jesus? Because we're going to go through the story and we're going to see different responses to the arrival of the king. And it should cause us to reflect and ask the question, how will we respond? Will we do nothing? Will we be threatened? Will we ignore him? Will we be too distracted, too self-consumed to give Jesus praise? Or will you seek him out and worship him? How will you respond to the arrival of King Jesus? Let's first look at the response of the wise men in verses 1 to 2. In verses 1 and 2, we see the wise men search for the Christ. That's how they respond to the arrival. They search for the Christ. The wise men search for Jesus, the Messiah, as the star leads them. Look at verse 1. And after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. We know from this story, we know from our knowledge and understanding of history, the common story of Jesus, he was born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, sits about five miles south of Jerusalem in Israel. It was the time of Herod the king. This is Herod the Great. 
We'll talk about him more in a few verses. We know Herod the Great died somewhere between 6 to 4 B.C., probably 4 B.C., so Jesus was born before Christ. You can figure that out for yourself. But around this time, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Who were these wise men? As I said, we traditionally think of them as three kings, as the song goes. That's probably not accurate. For the first part, there probably weren't three of them. We actually don't know the number. We assume three, or kind of the folklore says three, because of the three gifts that we'll talk about later. But we don't know how many of these kings there were. They probably traveled, actually, in a large group of people, maybe guards and helpers and servants that traveled with them. So it was a large group. Does anybody know the traditional name of the three kings? History has actually given them names. Just a little trivia for you. Melchior, Casper, and Balthazar. Totally made up, but you can use those if you want. We probably also should not call them kings. Probably shouldn't call them wise men. The word that's used is translated mage. It's, negatively speaking, a word for a magician, a sorcerer, somebody who practices magical and dark arts. Alternatively, you could define this word, it could be interpreted as astrologer, somebody who looks to the skies for signs, and somebody who practices the interpretation of dreams. All those things kind of fall into what this word means, mage, astrologer. What they likely were in practice were counselors for royalty. They probably counseled kings. They were people who practiced maybe astrology and divination, interpretive dreams, magic, all those kinds of things, to give counsel to kings. So you can think of in Egypt, Pharaoh had his court magicians, In the book of Daniel, in Babylon, the king had uh, soothsayers and priests, and they advised the king. That's probably what these men were, astrologers who came from foreign kingdoms. And what kingdoms did they come from? Well, we don't know, just, you know, it's from the east. Very likely, it's either Arabia or Babylon, somewhere southeast of Israel in the Arabian Peninsula, or a little bit north of there, either Arabia or Babylon, We don't know. We don't know much about them, actually. We know they're foreigners who practice a different sort of religion from different nations who, for some reason, are looking for the Messiah. And that's the interesting part. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce says, The fact that so little information is given about the wise men clearly shows that Matthew's interest was not focused upon the wise men themselves. Rather, he was interested in the fact that Gentiles came to worship the Jewish Messiah. That's what's fascinating about this. That somehow these men knew that there would be a Messiah, a Savior, born to Israel. Maybe, here's a theory, they're from Babylon, and Israel has some history with Babylon, and there may be some Jewish presence an influence left in Babylon and scripture had been passed down to them and they, from their Jewish cultural influence, had picked up on this anticipation of the Messiah. Maybe they knew the prophecy of Balaam in Numbers 24, 17, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. 
And somehow they knew to look for a Messiah. So one day, they looked up. They're astrologers, they're interpreting the signs, and what do they see? Something they've never seen before. A bright star appeared. There are different theories about what the star could have been. Maybe it's a comet, except comets kind of come and go quickly. This star lingers. So some say maybe it's the alignment of planets, like Saturn and Jupiter aligned and sort of formed a bright star. Totally possible. Who knows? But the point is, they saw something they'd never seen before, a star, and in their own understanding, they thought that star is the star promised that would signal the king, so let's follow it and find the Messiah. And here's what's fascinating about all of that. Things like astrology, use of magic, dark arts, that stuff is outlawed in the Old Testament. It is not for God's people Israel. And yet, God uses it to speak to these foreigners and lead them to Jesus. God, in his grace, speaks to these astrologers in a language they'll understand and reaches out to them and calls them to follow his son. It's what God does. He reaches out to people where they are, no matter their background, in language that we would understand, says, come follow my son. That is God's grace. It has been God's grace in your life that he has called you, even if you're in dark, wicked, foreign backgrounds, and called you to say, come and follow Jesus. So the question is not whether God can communicate to us. He can speak through a star. The question is, how will we respond once called? And the question for you is, have you looked for the Messiah, the Savior, and have you found him? These wise men looked for him and found him out. But unlike the wise men who looked to worship Jesus, Herod, the king, is threatened by the Christ. And that's what we see in verses 3 and 4, and also in verses 7 through 8. Whereas the wise men look for him to worship him, the king, Herod, is threatened by the Christ. The king is threatened by the Christ. He is, as one pastor said, more worried about the preservation of his throne than he is about the salvation of his soul. And I find it fascinating that as they follow the star, the star doesn't take them directly to Jesus' home. There's a detour. The star leads them to Jerusalem, the place where Herod is. It's almost as if God, by his divine plan, wants to stir up Jerusalem and stir up the king and create an opportunity Come see Jesus. The star leads the wise man to Herod, and verses 3 and 4 and then 7 and 8 say this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Then down to verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. You may have heard of Herod, Herod the Great. He's one of a 
a number of Herods in that line, in that dynasty. Herod the Great got his name because he was a great builder. He was uh, famous for his ambitious works in building up Israel. So the temple in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus was built up and kind of made magnificent because of Herod's work on it. So later in the Gospels, we'll hear disciples saying to Jesus, isn't it impressive? And Jesus will have some words about the temple, but it is an impressive building because Herod built into it, and he did that all across Israel, built all sorts of wonderful things. He is also um, infamous for his wickedness, his paranoia, and his evil. I don't know the exact number, I'm not sure if we know, but he had something along the line of ten wives, fourteen children, nine sons, somewhere in there. He had two of his sons killed. He had one of his wives killed, along with her whole family, her brother, her mom, had all of them killed because anybody he saw as a threat to his throne, he was going to put down. Anybody who might threaten his power, threaten his rule, he would have killed. He protected his throne. So when Herod, who is a foreigner, he has... I think his father was an Edomite, his mother was an Arabian, and somewhere in the line somebody converted to Judaism, but he's a foreigner by blood who was put in power over Israel by the Roman government. The Romans put him in power, not well loved by the Jewish people. When he hears that there's a child born of the line of David, who might have a rightful claim to the throne, who's supposed to be the savior of Israel, how does Herod react? Is he overjoyed? No. He's threatened by the existence of Jesus and what it might mean to his own power, his own comfort, his own security, his legacy as king. He does not want Jesus to threaten anything about him, particularly his power. Recently, I was listening to a podcast. It was a podcast about Hollywood and movies and entertainment, and, and, and they were talking about YouTube and the dominance of YouTube as a social media platform, as an entertainment service. And they were talking about how you can find anything on YouTube, and they'll, in fact, just sit their kids in front of YouTube, and that's how they can occupy them for a little bit, which... All of us parents do from time to time. YouTube has many wonderful things that can entertain and occupy a child. But they were saying in this podcast, you have to really be careful with YouTube. Because sometimes things just pop up on there that you don't want your kids to see. So you have to protect them. And I was tracking with this, and I think I've heard the same thing from all sorts of Christian parents. And then they said, yeah, like very often, Jesus stuff will just pop up on there. And Christian stuff. And you really have to watch out and protect your kids from that. This is not a Christian podcast, right? And in their minds, rightly or not, Christianity is associated with far-right extremism and all sorts of things they don't want to be associated with. So anything that brings up Jesus and gospel stuff is a threat. I think we've got to protect our kids from the threat of this Christian stuff that just pops up on YouTube sometimes. Jesus can be a threat to those who don't want him there. And Jesus can be a threat to any of us when we don't want him interacting with the things we hold dear.
In many ways, Christ can be a threat to the things that are on our own throne, things we don't want to give up. We know the story of Jesus with the young ruler. What did Jesus threaten? His wealth? Didn't want to give up his wealth to follow Jesus. What does Jesus threaten for you and I? Our popularity with coworkers and family? To follow Jesus faithfully, that won't be popular amongst my friends, amongst my family. So I'm going to try and keep my Christianity pretty quiet so as to not to offend because I don't want to disrupt my relationships with people that I value more than my relationship with Jesus because Jesus threatens that. Maybe following Jesus threatens your time and your comfort and your leisure. I've got a pretty nice life carved out for myself and I'm pretty tired and doing more Jesus stuff just means I have less time and I don't want my time to be threatened by Jesus. If I follow him, it's going to require more of me and I just don't think I want that. Maybe Jesus threatens your self-righteousness. If I'm going to accept Jesus as king, I'm going to have to admit that I'm not perfect, I'm not righteous. In fact, I'm probably going to have to start asking others for forgiveness, confessing sins to other people, and that's just really hard for me to admit that I might be wrong, that I might need a savior, and Jesus comes and threatens my self-righteousness. Maybe Jesus threatens uh, the affection and attention of others. I really want to be loved by people. Specifically, you know, I'm a single person, I want a spouse, and I want a spouse so desperately, I don't care who that spouse is, even if I know following Jesus would say uh, that probably not a good person for me, but I desire attention and affection and love others more than I want to be obedient to Jesus and what he'd call me to do. So I'm going to put Jesus over here and give my life to somebody else who I know Jesus wouldn't approve of. And Jesus has this weird way of threatening things that we hold dear. And we can look at Herod and say, how foolish of him to be threatened by Jesus. It's an opportunity for them to look inside So, where does Jesus threaten us and what is on our throne. Herod rejected Jesus because he was threatened by him. Others simply ignored him. I think that's what's going on with these scribes and these priests. I don't think this is the main point of Matthew's text here, but it seems to me that these scribes and priests had a wonderful opportunity to come bow at the feet of Jesus, and they passed on it, ignoring him. Let me show you what I mean. The religious leaders ignore the Christ, in verses 5 and 6. The religious leaders ignore the Christ. Look at verse 5. Herod has called the scribes and the priests together, and they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod gathered together priests, experts in the law, and kind of the pastors of the community, the scribes, who were scholars and experts as well, interpreted the Bible, and he, he knew, Herod knew some of the prophecies about coming of Messiah, and he called together the leaders and asked, where is the child going to be born? Don't miss this. They knew the answer. It had been revealed to them. They knew their Old Testament. They knew and had the right answer where Jesus was going to be born. They quote Micah 5 and they interpret, or incorporate a little bit of 2 Samuel 5 too, which says, The Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel. 
and you shall be prince over Israel. They knew what Scripture said, that out of Bethlehem would come a ruler who would be the shepherd and savior of God's people. It wasn't just known to them. It was kind of well-known amongst the people. They were looking for a Messiah. It would come, or he would come from Bethlehem. So there's this passage in John 7 where people are arguing about who is Jesus and who is this guy? What is he? Is he a prophet? Is he a Messiah? And John 7, 41 through 42 says, Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Jesus was born in Bethlehem but raised in Nazareth, Galilee. And he ministered in Galilee. And said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? It was known where Jesus was to come from, where the Messiah was to come from. So you would think that when these foreigners, these foreign dignitaries come, they make a commotion in Jerusalem saying, we think the Messiah is born, we followed his star here. Herod gathers a whole bunch of people together. Is this true? Where does he come from? Herod says, Bethlehem, we know where it's coming from. And the whole city is shaken up and stirred, along with the king, troubled. You would think that then a grand procession of experts and leaders in Israel would go to Bethlehem to figure it out. And what do we see? None of that. They ignore him. They ignore it. Nobody goes. Where are all the Jewish people who've been waiting for the Messiah from Bethlehem? They know the right answer and do nothing practically with it. Just knowing the right answer is not enough. My fear is that our response to the knowledge of Jesus would be very often similar to these scribes and the priests who know where Jesus is, know where to find him, know how to worship him, and do nothing. Has Jesus provoked an actual response from you so that you move your feet in worship? Or do we ignore him? Knowing the truth, but sitting unaffected. The passage calls us, I think, to be like the wise men who in verses 9 through 12 worship the Christ. It's the last response we see in this passage. The wise men worship the Christ. Wise men and wise women worship the Christ. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Some rejected Jesus, some ignored him. 
And I apologize if you thought this was going to be a nice, warm Christmas message with no challenge or conviction in it. Sometimes we need to be made uncomfortable by familiar passages. I just don't care if I'm offending some. I don't want the familiarity of Christmas to leave you unprovoked. I said last week I love the festivity and the joy of Christmas. I do. And I also love the clear, crystal clear call to give everything to Jesus. And the reminder that he is king and you are not, and I am not. And he is Lord. And surprisingly, the people that get this in this passage are not the people who have the answer, they're not the king who has all power. It's the foreigners from outside who come and pay tribute, who come and worship Jesus Christ, the people you wouldn't expect. And God makes sure that they find him as they leave Herod's palace. God places the star. And now it's moving, right? So now we are clearly in the realm of supernatural phenomenon because the stars, stars don't do this. Stars don't come and then stand to rest over one particular home. Almost like a, a beacon in a video game where you play and you have a quest marker. Here's where to go, right there. Or GPS, you have astrological GPS right here. Uh, we use that to drive to somebody's home or follow Elon Musk's jet, whatever it is. We, that's just for a few of you. Um, this star lands right over Jesus' home, and they come and they worship him. What do they find when they get to Jesus' home? Well, first, it's a home and not a manger, so every nativity that has the wise men there, <laughs> inaccurate. Jesus has moved out of the manger into a home. He's somewhere between zero and two years old at this point. And they come and they find just a mother and a child. And they fall down and worship. How many of you are familiar with the Disney movie Aladdin? It's now old, which means I'm now old. But there's this great scene where Aladdin, because he rubbed the lamp and the genie granted him a wish and he wished to be a prince royalty, and he makes his grand entrance as Prince, Prince Ali. And if you know the scene, what does that entrance look like as Aladdin, now the prince, uh, by magic of genie, now Prince makes his grand entrance, what, what comes along with him? You know the song, Prince Ali. Yeah, okay, you know the song. There's jugglers, there's musicians, there's money being thrown everywhere, there's elephants marching in this whole scene. It's a grand, wonderful entrance of the prince and all this fanfare. And contrast that with here. Where's the fanfare for Jesus? There's no line. You're going to find longer lines at Walmart on a Saturday. You will find longer lines to sit on Santa's lap than the wise men found here at the home of Jesus. There was no line, there was no procession of people coming to worship him, it was just them. That's all they had. And what was their response? They didn't look around to see, is it okay? Do I have sanctioned approval from the masses and the crowds to worship Jesus? Have I been given approval from the government, approval from the experts and the scholars? Do, has 
popular polling told me that it's okay, are my friends and family around and, and have given me approval to worship Jesus? No, there's no fanfare, there's nothing else, there's no throne, it's just Jesus himself and that's enough. Because Jesus, all by himself, even as a child, merits worship. So the question for you is, is Jesus enough to merit your worship? Or are you looking around, waiting for approval from everybody else? As long as there's sufficient fanfare, as long as I know I'm not in the minority, as long as I know there's no pressure around, then and only then is it okay to give my life and worship to Jesus. No, Jesus himself, if you see him clearly, is enough to make wise men bow down. He is worthy of praise all by himself. And of course we know how they worship. With gold and frankincense and myrrh. Matthew's overall point in giving those gifts and highlighting those gifts is to show that these are gifts worthy of a king. These are the kind of gifts ambassadors give to royalty. In the Old Testament it had been prophesied that nations would come and bring their wealth to Jerusalem and to the Messiah. Haggai 2.7 says, And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. This is the treasures of the nations coming in and filling the house with glory. Reminded of the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, 1 Kings 10, who comes to visit the son of David, Solomon, showers him with gifts. The Old Testament was looking forward to the time when the nations would come in and bring their wealth to Messiah, the king. And that's the point of this, that even as a child, this child is the king worthy of worship, and the nations come in and worship him. And at the same time, it's really even hard not to miss the symbolism of the three gifts. Gold, commonly associated with royalty. Frankincense or incense, which was used in worship and even used in temple sacrifices. Myrrh. Myrrh is a resin extract associated in the Old Testament with joy and merrymaking. And the culture was used medicinally. Myrrh, if you mixed it, especially with something like wine, was a painkiller. So we read in Mark 15, 23, that Jesus, when he was on the cross, was offered wine mixed with myrrh as a painkiller. And Jesus refuses it. Myrrh is also mixed with aloes and spices and formed an embalming anointing substance, John 19.39. You see that Jesus is buried and anointed with myrrh and other aloes. It's not hard to see the connection between these gifts and who Jesus is. A king worthy of worship, a priest, and a sacrifice dying for our sins. This is how a child would be a savior and shepherd to Israel. He'd be Israel's king, Israel's priest, 
Israel's sacrifice. It's what he is for us. Our king, our priest who connects us to God, our sacrifice who died in our place. When we were in rebellion, when we were enemies of God, we had no earthly way to be given peace with God. Nothing we could do, no amount of good works, no moral righteousness in us, nothing that we could offer up to restore our relationship with God, to make us perfect and clean again. We need somebody else to die in our place for us, and Jesus is that one, the king, the priest, the sacrifice for us. These foreign astrologers worship him well. Then afterwards, they're told in a dream, leaving, avoid Herod. They're told, go another way home. Herod has plotted against them and against this Jesus. So they leave safely because God intervenes to protect those who worship his son. Just like these foreigners, these astrologers who are now part of and have become part of the family of God, God has called them, they worship the king, and then God saved them and protected them. How will you respond to the Messiah? How will you respond to the arrival of King Jesus? You know who he is. You know what the scripture says. You know the stories. You're familiar with them. Do they cause you to worship and bring your offering and your whole life to him because he's worthy? That would be my prayer for all of us this Christmas season, that we don't ignore him, aren't threatened by him, don't reject him, but fall on our knees and worship. Would you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son, that you have called to us, just as you called through a star to astrologers, you have called through the providences of our life, circumstances of our life, relationships we've had, other people, your scripture. You use all sorts of means to call people to come and worship your Son, Jesus. And I pray that we would not reject that call, ignore that call, that, Lord, we would all be submitted to you, and that you would continue to give that call day by day, week by week, month by month in our lives, that we would not stay stagnant, but we would be constantly called back to giving our very best to the Lord Jesus Christ, not to earn your love, but because you've given us your love in Jesus, and we want to respond in praise and worship. And Lord, I love the fanfare of this season, and I love everything that comes along with it. And we all do to some extent, I know. But in the midst of it all, let us worship Jesus, because he by himself is worthy of all of our praise and all of our life. Lord, let us praise him this morning. Amen.